Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Good to be together this morning. We started last week a study in Titus. And this, uh, this uh, particular book we're going to walk through helps us uh, understand a lot of things, particularly about what is the church supposed to look like, what, uh, what is a church. We talked about that last week and kind of broke that down in depth. If you missed last week, you can catch it online, rlcpullman.com slash sermons, and uh, go back and listen to that one. We uh, are going to dig into the text today, but one thing I want to say before we jump into this is um, the, the reason this book is so important for us even yet today is it's so good for us to be grounded in God's word and God's plans for us as a church. And so last week we kind of unpacked what is a church, like a, a body of believers, and, and, and that it's not about building real life, right, or about building our brand. It's about yeah, winning people to Jesus, and people that love Jesus meet in all kinds of places all over our community, which is great. Uh, and we actually all are the same church. And so if you, if that kind of catches your attention and you weren't here last week, go back and listen to that one. And so today we're going to dig into the text. But one thing you'll notice about Titus as a, a book, if you will, of the Bible, it's really small, right? It's a pretty short, brief, succinct letter from Paul to Titus. Uh, it doesn't take up a lot of words. And so if you look at this and think, okay, if this is supposed to be Paul writing to Titus to uh, really map out for him not only what he's supposed to do, but how he's supposed to do it, he was a little light on instruction, right? Like he gives him one of the most difficult assignments that any disciple ever gets. He gets sent to Crete uh, where it is a place where their own historians, their own philosophers say that the people of Crete were liars and brutes and gluttons. Uh, we know that Rome sent prisoners of war or enemies of Rome there. This was not a great place uh, as far as the type of people that inhabited it. It was pretty rough crowd. And and so Paul sends Titus here to this really tough assignment to go and find all of the believers there that are gathering in these pockets in different towns as local churches and to get everything put in order and appoint elders. And it's like, man, if for such a big assignment in such a difficult place, it sure feels like he was light on instruction, right? Now, what I want you to know is there's way more to the story between Paul and Titus than you can understand from just this letter to Titus. So that's why I put in your notes, you'll see there's a whole timeline in there that kind of maps everything out because I wanted to help all of you have a bit of a, a reference, kind of a train of thought to be able to see like how long and how much Paul and Titus have done together. We know that by the time this letter is written to him, for sure 16 years, it's it's pretty likely and probable that it might have been upwards of closer to 20 years that they had known each other and throughout that time traveled extensively together, planted churches together, had gone back to churches that they had planted previously. Um, Titus would have been intimately involved with Paul and Timothy 
and sending and leaving Timothy in Ephesus and all of the conversation about what does church leadership look like in Ephesus and how do we establish the church and what problems are coming up and how do we address them. Like we mentioned last week, Titus was really integral in taking letters back and forth to the church in Corinth with Paul. And so Titus, although you don't get, you don't get the picture from this brief little letter, you don't get the, if all you knew was what you read in this little letter from Paul to Titus, you could come to the wrong assumption that Paul didn't do a very good job of getting Titus ready for a really hard job. What you miss is that when you unpack the rest of the scripture, we get a picture of Paul and Titus that is a really long-standing relationship. They've spent a great deal of time together and traveled a lot of country together and have been intimately involved in the workings of starting churches and revisiting and coaching and equipping disciples. And so if that's what is in the background, in fact, I, I would say that I actually think, I actually think, Paul was so confident in Titus that probably not much of what he actually wrote to him in this letter was stuff that would have been new things to Titus. Like, like I actually think Paul believed Titus was the right guy for that job in that place. I think that Paul believed that Titus knew what to do, that he knew who to look for when it comes to elders, that he knew what he meant when Paul just vaguely said, go put things in order. Like he just trusted this guy that he had spent so much time with, discipled and invested in, that, that he would have known what that meant, right? And, and I actually think Paul had the utmost confidence in choosing Titus for this really difficult job. And so that begs the question, well, then why bother writing the letter? Right? Like if, if you feel like, if Titus really knows what to do and he knows where to go and he knows what he's supposed to do when he's there, then what's the significance of this little letter? And I think there's a few things that probably are important to notice. Um, I think first of all, one of the things that's really important about this letter is it's a way for Paul to publicly declare the mission. Right? He can just put it out there in writing. And so one of the things you'll need to know about this letter is Although it's addressed to Titus, what would have been the norm and the tradition is for Titus to take this letter from Paul and everywhere he goes to a church, which would have been like small groups or, or, or like maybe for us in the world we live in, maybe four or five home groups uh, gathering together in somebody's house that has room, you know, that kind of a feel, um, some potentially in a synagogue, uh, a Jewish uh, church. And so uh, Titus would have taken that letter from Paul and he would have gathered the believers together in that local little pocket and they would have read the letter from Paul together. And so one of the things you need to know is that everybody that Titus is going to would have been hearing what Paul said to Titus as well. It wasn't like a private secret letter to Titus. That's not how it worked. They would read these amongst the believers. And so one of the things I think that's cool is that this is a way for Paul to really publicly declare the mission. In, in verse one through three, he says, this letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. This truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. 
And now at just the right time, he, was reve- uh, he has revealed this message, which we announced to everyone. It is by the command of God, our Savior, that I have been entrusted with this work for him. And so Paul is, is saying to Titus, but also to all that Titus would go to, like the mission is about entrusting people with the truth, the truth that will lead them to a godly life and that will also lead them to eternal life. That's this mission that Titus is a part of. The next thing that I think is really cool is it's a way for Paul to publicly affirm Titus. Um, if you're Titus and you're going to all of these different pockets of believers all throughout Crete, and, and many times, uh, probably most of the time, going to be meeting people that you've never met before, and you have in common your faith in Christ, but then there's all sorts of unknown. It's a tough spot for Titus to go on this mission and go from town to town, from house church to house church, and to roll in there and just say, hey, so here's the deal. I'm Titus, and everything I say you guys need to do. And like, well, uh, what? Why? Because I said so. And it's like, well, yeah, we've heard a lot of guys have come through and given us the because I said so. So what's different about you? Why should we believe you? Why should we do church the way you say do church? And, and Titus had with him a letter from the Apostle Paul affirming Titus, not only declaring the mission, but really personally affirming Titus. He says in this letter, this is Titus, my uh, true son in the faith, this common faith that we share. And he, he prays this blessing or writes this blessing over Titus. And so it's a way for the hearers of that letter to go, man, we, we know Paul and we've heard about Paul and Paul holds this man in high regard. He looks at him as one of his very own like family members. And so all of a sudden Titus coming in saying, hey, here's what we need to get in order has some weight with it that he wouldn't have had by himself. The, the next thing is it's also a way that Paul could declare the mission and transfer authority to Titus. In verse five, he says, I left you on the island of Crete so that you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. So this, this wasn't like a new idea to Titus. He, it's not like he got this letter from Paul and went, oh, finally, now I know what I'm supposed to do. Titus, having traveled with Paul, having been a part of church planting with Paul and establishing elders, he, he would have known, like, wherever we go, wherever we go, we find the gathering of believers and we help them get things in order. We look for qualified men to eld and, and to oversee and shepherd this local body of believers. But Paul writes this to him because it's a way for Paul to not only say, this is what Titus is here for, but it's a way for Paul to say, I am entrusting him with this job. And so the people that heard that letter read knew it came with the authority of Paul. Like Paul's not only just blessed him in this, but is bestowing this authority on him. So, uh, so Paul's writing to Titus and he starts to give him some criteria for the kind of leaders, the kind of elders that you should have in a local body of believers. And I want to—I just want to say before we jump into this, not only in Titus, but also in Timothy, where Paul talks about elders and who you should look for and who's qualified. In both cases, um, there's a couple things to just observe about these things. First of all, Paul implies that any Christian man could seek this role. 
Eldership in, uh, in the Bible is reserved for men, and to elder, uh, to be an overseer or shepherd of the church. It's a, a unique role in the governance or uh, shepherding or oversight of a local body of believers. There's to be elders that are from that group. And, and Paul's making it clear, there's no special divine calling. You don't have to have a, a special gift or a, a special um, you know, uh, blessing from the Holy Spirit or some unique thing that makes only certain people qualified. Any man could potentially pursue that task. Uh, the second thing is that the primary criteria for selection and approval was maturity in Christ. So in both cases where Paul talks about eldership, like who do we look for to lead the local bodies of believers, his overarching thing that he's looking for is maturity in Christ. He maps out some different areas about that we'll, we'll unpack here in just a minute. But all of those areas are like trying to help us get a 360 degree view of a person's life to see if the way they walk out their faith uh, all areas of their life, does it line up? Is there, uh, is there maturity in the way in their marriage? Is there spiritual maturity in following Jesus as a parent? Is there spiritual maturity in following Jesus in the way they conduct themselves in business or with their friendships, right? And so these are the things that it's important for us to know up front. Anybody, any guy can uh, aspire to the office of eldership. In fact, Paul says in other places that any man that desires this task desires a noble thing. Like having good, godly men that desire to be in the mix in loving and shepherding and leading the local bodies of believers is really important. It's really important, and we'll talk more about that. So with that in mind, let's take a look at what Paul kind of maps out to Titus. And we're going to read through the whole thing, and then we'll just kind of circle back and unpack it a little bit. So an elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife, and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. A church leader is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent or dishonest with money. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message that was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. All right. Now let's circle back and kind of break it down a little bit, okay? Um, Paul says, uh, an elder must live a blameless life. In other translations, it'll say that he needs to be a man that's above reproach is another way that gets translated. And so he starts with this overarching kind of general uh, perception of this guy, of this potential elder. They need to be blameless. In other words, are they living their life in a way where they could be easily accused of doing things wrong? Because if, it's, if somebody often gets accused of lying or in the culture that they were in in Crete, for example, or gluttony or drunkenness, and it's like, no, 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 I saw him, right? And they're often accused, like, looks like a duck, smells like a duck, probably a duck, right? So he's like, is he living his life in a way that's above reproach? Is he a person that would be hard to accuse? It'd be hard for somebody to find something bad about him. 
just in general. So he starts kind of in the more general, and then he digs into more personal. He says um, that the next thing is, is that he must be faithful to his wife. And also this gets translated often as the husband of but one wife. Um, breaking it down in plain English, like a spiritual, a spiritual leader must be a one-wife man, right? Those of you in the room that are married, this is where you nod yes. One-wife man <laughs> is really wise, right? Um, and so this is something that, uh, this is a particular criteria that Paul talks about for an elder that has caused uh, unfortunately, a lot of confusion. Churches throughout uh, the country and around the world for a long time have misinterpreted and tried to make Paul say something he didn't. And, and they will try to grab a hold of this literal one wife man and they'll essentially say, if you've ever had more than one wife, so if you were divorced and now you no longer have a wife, well, can a single guy be an elder? What about a guy that doesn't have kids? Is that the, the legalistic, nitty-gritty, like try and interpret the words to their nth degree? Is that what Paul's trying to say? Or is Paul trying to talk about the character and the lifestyle and the quality of the person? Paul, Paul's not saying and never meant to say, if a person has been divorced, you can't be an elder. And this is something that the church has got a hold of over the years and has done so much damage. There's been so many people that have uh, divorce in their personal life, divorce in their parent life, divorce in their kid lives, uh, or close friends of you that have gone through divorce. And people have heard wrong teaching about what divorce means when it comes to your participation as a Christian in the body of Christ. People have heard that if you're divorced, you're now excluded you cannot maybe be a home group leader. You cannot maybe lead a Bible study. You couldn't be the worship leader. You couldn't be an elder. And by all means, you sure couldn't be a pastor. And it's wrong. It's wrong teaching. The very same people and the very same leaderships in the same churches will tell stories and celebrate the person who went off the rails and was addicted to drugs and slept around and had all kinds of harmful sin to themselves and to other people whose life turned around by God's grace and they got on track and they became mature in their faith and have a, a talent and ability to lead worship or lead men and women and could be a wise elder. And, and they say, oh, what a beautiful story of redemption, how God's redeemed this person from this horrible mess that they were in and look at how they've changed and they're mature and, and that person somehow is qualified for really wherever God calls them because it's such a great story. But if you've been divorced in the church, in so many churches, it's been like this weird, unpardonable sin. And so I just say that if all you hear today is that divorce does not disqualify you from being a part of the body of Christ. It does not disqualify you from being in leadership and involved in an intimate way and taking the church forward. Then maybe that's what you needed to hear. Likewise, just because you're on the other side of a divorce doesn't mean that you're ready. And, and so the rest of the criteria that Paul lays out speak to the rest of a person's life. What Paul is shooting for here is that you're a, a one-woman kind of man. 
He says, the kind of elder is the kind of person that you want to oversee the church. If they're married, they're a person that is faithful to their wife. There's, there's probably very few things a guy can do to build his reputation in a good way as be faithful to his wife. There's also very few things a guy can do to hurt his reputation as to be unfaithful to his wife. And so Paul's like, you need to look for men who have a track record of being a one-woman guy. They're faithful to their wife because if they can be faithful to their wife, then that develops an understanding that they could be faithful to lead people in the church. He goes on to get a little more personal. Now he talks about... um, with uh, kids. He says their children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or disobedient. So saying it in plain English, is your children's behavior disqualifying you from eldership? And again, this is another area where the church has tried to twist things around and make Paul say something he didn't. Like the idea about children here is adult children. Um, that same word that he uses for kids is another time he uses the same word to talk about um, children taking care of their widowed mother. And so the idea is, how are your kids living? Like as they fly the coop, what does their life look like? Are they reckless and wild and disobedient? Is their reputation telling a story about that potential elder, how they parented and, and how they could lead and shepherd other people. And, and it's not about like, it's not about uh, somebody having a rough patch in their life. It's not about some kid, um, you know, having a season where they're having a hard time. It's about like, are they consistently like in your little place? Does everybody know your kids like Eli's sons? Does everybody know the reputation of them? Because over and over and over and over again, it's a DUI over here. It's a DUI over there. It was they were in a jail for this, or they were off the rails for that, or they got in a fight at this thing. And it's like, man, it's not just they had a rough time and they're wrestling with their faith. It's, It's this consistent, ongoing, reckless, disobedient kind of life. And then in uh, the rest of that, it talks about believers. And that word for believers in Greek is pistos. And it means trusting or faithful. And the idea that Paul's driving at when it, he's talking about looking for possible elders is you need to consider their kids. Like, particularly, um, what does it say about a guy if his kids are consistently off the rails? And that's what he's, that's what he's driving at here. Uh, the next thing he gets into is this uh, kind of more personal criteria about that uh, potential elders um, kind of personal um, bent or how they live and, and their kind of personality. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. And so just, again, breaking it down, avoid the overconfident or cocky types. Likewise, steer clear of the hot-headed and it seems sort of like obvious a little bit. Sometimes, do you, do you ever notice how sometimes you think common sense is common sense for a reason, but then you realize there's a reason we joke about it being common sense because not everybody has it? That's sort of why Paul has, is mapping out some of these things. Like, uh, avoid the arrogant. Arrogance is when somebody exaggerates their own, uh, uh, their own worth. They overestimate and oversell their, uh, their strengths, 
And then they tend to underestimate or undersell their weaknesses. That's, that's what arrogance kind of looks like played out. And it makes sense why that makes Paul's list of things that, that Titus should be mindful of in a potential elder of these local gatherings of believers. Like, hey, be cautious. Like, like red flag pops up when someone is consistently overestimating themselves. That's arrogance. And then another obvious character trait is to, to avoid is the person with a short fuse, right? You can imagine in Crete, this is a, an early church. It's getting its feet under it in all of these different pockets and different towns. And people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And then the next day, still worshiping Zeus. They're very much worshiping Jesus and, and putting their faith and trust in this new God that they've learned about and still having sex with a temple prostitute. They're committing to Christ and saying that they're all in and then secretly going back to the sin that they used to do because it was fun. As an elder in these local churches, it would not be great to have somebody that's got a quick temper and a short fuse because you're going to be dealing with some frustrating people. You're going to be dealing with some people that are wrestling out their faith, that are one foot in, one foot out, that feel like they're all in one day and and then all of a sudden they're all out the next day. And if you're a person that's got a quick fuse and you get just angry about anything, right? Like you sit down with somebody, they, they, you preach the gospel to them, you're teaching God's word to them, and then the next day you see their car parked in front of the place that it shouldn't be parked of. Like if you're the kind of guy that walks in there and grabs them by the neck and pulls them out and wants to pop them in the nose, right? You're probably not going to be that helpful to the church. Well, that guy's wife might appreciate it. I don't know, right? Like... So avoid people with a short fuse. And then he goes on to some more things that feel like they should sort of be obvious, but he says them anyway. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. So I like to just break this one down. Uh, No drunks, jerks, or cheats. When you're thinking about who do you want to lead the local body of churches, no drunks, jerks, or cheats. And it feels a little bit like, do we need to say that? Like, isn't that kind of obvious? <laughs> like, but then you think about what is Titus doing? He's going from town to town. He's quickly establishing relationship with these local pockets of believers. And he's trying to discern with God's help, who are the right people to appoint to oversee and lead these local congregations, these local assemblies of believers. Now, one of the things I know about people is anytime you put a group of people together for any amount of time at all, somebody always becomes the leader. Always. And you can watch in a room, even when people rarely know each other, but you know that Titus, everywhere he goes to these local churches, there is already people that are the de facto leaders, right? You watch as he says something and you kind of scan the room in the house and everybody, when there's like a decision to be made, everybody kind of, you know, scans. And it's like, oh, that's the guy. That's who everybody's looking to, right? And, and so one of the tough things that Titus had is he's, he is trying to develop and identify church leaders, qualified men who have a maturity in Christ from amongst a pretty uh, rough population. 
And it could be easy. You could not say this. You could not say, don't be a, a, a drunk, a jerk, or a cheat. You could not include this. And it's easy to kind of slide down the slippery slope where, where your criteria becomes like, what do you see as the average? What's the normal Cretan look like? And they're liars, drunkards, gluttons. It's a pretty rough crowd. And then you see somebody that's like, hey, that guy paid his electric bill on time. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, right? Like, that guy's responsible. Holy smokes, what a good guy that guy is. And that's not the standard. The standard isn't find people that are a little bit better than the people around them. And so Paul maps it out. And what I think is really cool is Paul has these criteria so that, that now the people in the congregation get to hear in these local bodies of believers, they get to hear that Paul is saying no drunks, jerks, or cheats. And so it helps Titus say a hard thing in front of everybody that Paul got to kind of carry some of the weight on. And so now everybody sort of goes, everybody in that local church is like, he's out, he's out, he's out, right? Like, and Titus didn't really even have to say it. It's like, mm, they're still working through some stuff. They also need to be known for some things, not just what they shouldn't do. In verse 8, he says, rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home. He must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. And, and Paul is just overall painting a picture of the, the, the type of person, the type of guy that, that Titus should be looking for. It was never intended here or in Timothy to be a magic checklist that some elder is supposed to meet every one of these things perfectly. The idea is to paint a picture of the personality or the type of person or character holistically that you would be looking for as a potential elder or leader of a church. Um, he says in here that he's going to be the kind of guy that likes to have people over. He's going to be the kind of guy that likes to be hospitable, to have people over, like a person that's going to be shepherd and oversee a local body of believers needs to be a bit of a people person. You're in the people business and you're looking for somebody that's already living in the people business. If it's a person that's like, you know, the best part about church is the, when the people are gone. And they make those little jokes about, you know, the best thing about, you know, whatever was when, when there was no people. Like, that's not the right kind of person. This is people business. And so they're going to have people over. In our world, what that means is elders are involved in home groups, and they're leading a home group, or they're involved in a home group. They're involved in discipling other uh, guys and gals in our church. They're in the people business, right? And then Paul tells them that he's um, looking for guys that are essentially sold out to follow Jesus and love God's people. They're wise and just. Um, they're not a pushover that's just getting used by anybody, you know, to kind of get their way in the church. They've got a backbone. Um, this is a position that's going to require a backbone. You imagine in Crete, some of the tough stuff that they're trying to navigate and establish leadership in a church, uh, how many different angles would come at one of those potential leaders. So all of that is really important. Um, the other thing that's really important is knowing about their devotion to the word of God. And Paul kind of finishes up talking about that, this significance that they need to have a strong belief, verse nine, they need to have a strong belief in the trustworthy message that, they were, uh, that he was taught. And then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they're wrong. And it's like 
there really needs to be a couple of things that elders do to be all in when it comes to knowing the word of God. They, they need to, um, they need to know the word really, really well so that they can encourage others uh, with wholesome teaching. The ESV says they, they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. So on the, on the positive side, like an elder, an overseer in a local church needs to know God's word so well because it's, it, like, it's imperative. Like one of their core things is they're going to they're gonna be one of the keepers of encouraging people with the word encouraging people with sound teaching. They're going to impregnate their church with sound doctrine because it's going to be part of how they teach and how they lead. Likewise, he says that um, they should uh, oppose people who are wrong. Uh, The ESV says, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is not a softy soft kind of job. Like this is a, there is some conflict involved in this job to oversee and, and lead people in the church. Not only do you affirm and encourage, but there is a level of commitment to the word of God that, that when you see or hear somebody teaching something that's not scripture, that's not the gospel, you, you, you stick up for it. And sometimes that's a really nice conversation with somebody you know who's just maybe doesn't understand what they just said and it's a cup of coffee and you go hang out at the uh, Cretan Cafe and you get things squared away, right? It's an easy conversation or like an Apollos who's like, hey, I'm all in. I just didn't know everything. And so he didn't know about baptism. And so maybe you add to help him understand. Other times it's genuinely false teachers, which was common in Crete. It was common everywhere Paul went. People would come behind him and try to manipulate or tweak the gospel and make it something that it wasn't. And so it was like part of an elder's job is to know it so good that they hear when somebody is deliberately teaching something that's not gospel. Uh, You guys have probably heard this before that when people learn how to spot counterfeit money, they, they never actually look at counterfeit money. The way to be trained is to look at the original money and become an absolute expert at the original. You study it. You look at every nuance. You hold it on different kinds of light. You look at every little uh, line and, and all of the things that show up in different directions, and you memorize what the original looks like. And when you're so intimately familiar with the original and a fake comes along, the stuff that's not right about the fake just jumps off the, the paper at you. It's like, that's missing, that's missing. I saw four things and I didn't even study the thing because you just know the original so well. That's kind of like what Paul has in mind for elders. Elders are people that, they're, they're godly guys that know God's word so well so that they can affirm and encourage and, and infuse into that local body of believers like sound doctrine, but they're also keepers of sound doctrine in a sense where sometimes it's helped people that are off a little bit. Other times it might need to be grab a wolf that's snuck in in sheep's clothing and grab him by the hide and go walk him to the curb. You don't get to do that here. There's a measure of like protecting the flock and caring deeply about God's word being taught properly. So, yes, we're going through Titus. Yes, we're walking through and looking at like what does church look like and how do you figure out who leads a church? And, and we're, we're learning from what Paul said to Titus, but it's also very applicable for us as a church. And as a church, uh, we have awesome godly elders 
And what's amazing and what's really cool is we have other elders that have been in training and are coming up through the pipeline. We have one guy that's been in training for a year and another guy that's been in training for about six months. And uh, all of you get to be a part of a church where we walk out as closely as we can. What does it look like to try and identify the right kind of elders, um, invite them in, call them up, and appoint them to be elders and overseers of our local church here in Pullman. And so in the months to come, you're actually going to get to see uh, new elders come on uh, the team. And what that looks like is when uh, those elders have completed the kind of the training that we've gone through, uh, and we as an eldership feel like they're the right people, and we've walked through things with their wives, we'll uh, bring them up and we'll appoint them, uh, or we'll present them, excuse me, uh, before the church, and we'll say, here's somebody, here's how they've been vetted, here's how we've looked through the life, the 360 degree, like how are they living kind of stuff and what is their character like and we feel like they are um, qualified and ready. They're, the, they're ready to be an elder in our church and we'll present them to you and then we say to you, hey, we'll give you a couple weeks to report back if there's anything that is a, a biblical reason for why this person should not be an elder. And, and you'll hear it again, but it's good for you to know, like, how do we do leadership in our church? We'll tell you that, and we're not looking for, this person sped past me on their way to Moscow, and you should have seen how they just were, like, doing 62 and a 45, right? Because all of us are disqualified. Um, what we're looking for is biblical reasons of why somebody could not be an elder. And I'll tell you, you'll hear it then and you'll hear it now, but like anonymous notes, uh, we don't listen to cowards. Your name's not on it. It doesn't, it, it doesn't get reported. It just goes in the shredder. And so if there's a reason, like this is really important stuff. This is a really important job. And the future of our church, our church 10 years from now, is better or worse by the leadership that we're choosing now. So I'm excited for you guys to get to be a part of that and to get to see us walk out what we learn in the scriptures as a church. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.